0: You are listening to the Sun Grove podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, identity and formation and community and mission. We are in a series that deals with how does spiritual growth actually happen? And it's so great to have that reminder, isn't it? Isn't it nice to have that reminder just right up front of what our identity is? We look, our, our identity is powerful. When we believe that we are who God says we are instead of who the Shame in the world and our own selves and our own self-accusation says we are, in that moment, our identity is incredibly powerful. But you move from incredibly powerful experiences to real life experiences. And in real life experiences, in that formation stage, you and I can feel incredibly weak. We have a powerful identity, but there are moments that life makes us feel powerless. When do you feel the most powerless? think about that for a minute when do you feel the most powerless for some of you it's conditioning week when you have to go back and play sports and it's that first week when you have to run again or you begin to work out again and you feel pretty powerless that week uh, for some of you it's day 3 of a sinus infection you've been fighting that cold but it's getting the best of you for others it's day 2 of chemotherapy and you feel powerless for others, it's when an unexpected bill shows up or, or something that shouldn't break down just breaks down and you weren't planned for it, it wasn't expected, and suddenly you feel powerless financially. Maybe for some of you, you feel powerless when you are sleep-deprived with a little baby. and just saying, how, how long does this last before this little one will sleep through the night? Maybe you feel powerless when someone tells you that you're incompetent. Or that you're insignificant, or they just they just ignore you and say you're unimportant. You're just never going to amount to anything, and then you feel powerless. How many of you want to do something great in your life? You want to make your life matter beyond your life. You want to do something great for God. You, in your life, you want, to, you want to make a splash for God. How many of you would say that you would like that to be true? You would like that, right? All of us all around the room are saying, I'd love, I would love to make a splash uh, for God and do something great in my life. But often, when we want to make a splash, sometimes life happens and we take a splash. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we make a splash, but we end up taking a splash. I remember being in college, and I went up on the ten-meter board. That's like thirty feet up above the water at the at the collegiate pool. And I thought this is going to be great. I'm going to I'm going to dive off, and I'm I'm going to just you know I'm going to impress everybody. And so I I go diving off, and I was diving off to make a splash. But the reality is, somewhere along the the thirty feet down, I miscalculated, and I took a splash. Right? And in that moment, you feel powerless. I'm sure a curse word came out of my mouth underwater. <laughs> it happened. I'm sure it just came out. That was some pain. It did not last good. It was not great, right? In those moments, you want to you want to make a splash, but you end up taking a splash. Do you ever relate to that in your life? You have this powerful identity, but you begin to walk through formative experiences in your life, and it's there that we we feel like I'm, I'm trying to walk on water, but I begin to sink and our formative experiences, this is formation. Where you and I are tried, it's where you and I are tested, it's where you and I are tempted. And sometimes we do well and other times we fall flat, even though we have a powerful identity when we believe that we are who God says we are. Paul said something very interesting in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. He says this about himself and, and the way that he's preaching. He says this, For we, what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Okay? He's basically saying, hey, we don't preach us. And we were saying, Paul, that is so noble. That is good for you. Well done to not preach yourself. But in our culture, that doesn't fly, right? Everything we do is to preach ourselves. The, what you're wearing today you chose out of your closet because you wanted to preach yourself, something about yourself. The type of sunglasses you wear, you wear because you're going to preach yourself. A lot of us drive cars that, that you drive to pull up at a light to impress people you don't even know with a car you can barely afford because you want to preach something about yourself. Everything we do in our culture preaches ourselves. We're just, that's the natural way of things. We constantly inflate our ego. When you and I feel powerless, we begin to try to puff ourselves up to be more powerful, right? Isn't that the way that triggers work? Somebody tells you you're incompetent, you're insignificant, that you're unimportant, and instantly you will begin to search to puff yourself up. You will begin to search for anything that tells you you're something, that you're somebody, that your life will make a splash, not just simply take. A splash. This is formation. Well, Jesus has gone through identity experience. He's been baptized. God speaks from heaven. You are my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. If you have identified with Christ, if you said, I put my faith, my trust in Jesus Christ, then you know That he says, you are my son or my daughter whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. And our mind thinks of all the things maybe God's not pleased with, but we know because it's not about us, it's about who he says we are and his great grace, his great love for us, that that's our true identity. It's powerful. But then life happens, right? And Jesus was no exception. He goes through a formative experience of being tried and tested and tempted. He now is uh, going headlong into his ministry. And at one point, now he has is, he is just fed 5,000 people. He has taken just some loaves and some fish and he blessed them and they spontaneously multiplied enough to feed a crowd of over really 5,000 people because they were saying it numbered about 5,000 men. Well, there were a lot of women, children, others there. He fed an immense amount of people with all these loaves and fish left over. He's in this incredible miracle. And then he learns that his cousin, the guy who baptized him, at the time that his identity was revealed to the world, was beheaded. His cousin was killed. You have this ultimate high. And in the next moment, life happens, right? Now we have this ultimate low. So Jesus goes up on a mountainside to be by himself. He's he's trying to say, I've just had this, this ultimate high experience, and now I've learned my cousin has been beheaded. He sends his disciples out on a boat to go across the lake. And that's where our story picks up. If you have your Bible, open with me to Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 46. Might be on your smartphone, might be your tablet, might be in your hand. Mark chapter 6, beginning with verse 46. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. And later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. Now, the Sea of Galilee, it's surrounded by hills and mountains, so you can see the whole lake from shore to shore, from almost anywhere. It's a little bit smaller than Tahoe. And so you can see the boat out there in the middle of the lake, and they're straining at the oars, right? He saw his disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them, and shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake, and he was about to pass by them. I don't know about you. Let me just tell about out real quick. I read the Bible sometimes, and there's funny stuff in this book. I mean, just going got to, please, picture this for just a moment, that, that you're there, and all of a sudden, you just realize, hey, Jesus is out there. He's going to walk on water. It just says, oh, he just walked on water. Like, it's no big deal. Just goes out there and walks on water. But that's not the funny thing to me. The funny thing to me is he's about to pass them by. He's not going to the boat. He's like, what's up, guys? Just walking by, right? Like, that's funny to me, right? And they see him and they're like, ah, you know, they've been out there all night long and Jesus is about to pass them by and so they, they get scared and this is what continues to happen. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost and they cried out because they all saw him and were terrified and immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And then he climbed in the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. Okay, so this amazing thing happens. Jesus just had this ultimate high, fed 5,000 people. He goes to be alone. Finds out his his cousin is killed, is beheaded. He needs some time alone. Now he's going for a walk. He walks on the water. Disciples are strained at the oars. And Mark, as he records the memoirs of Peter in this book that we call the action gospel because it's just fast, fast action, Peter intentionally leaves something out. There's a little more that happened in this story, but Peter, for some reason, when he's telling Mark to write down his memoirs, he leaves a little bit out. Fortunately, there were other guys in the boat. So we've got a guy named Matthew, one of the disciples who wrote a book called Matthew. Flip with me to Matthew chapter 14, verse 26 and following, because Peter leaves something out. There was an experience out there where he thought he would be powerful, but he ended up feeling powerless. Matthew chapter 14, begin with verse 26. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage It is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. Okay, there's a little additional information here right in the story, isn't there? All of a sudden, something else happens. So Peter gets down out of the boat, walked in the water, came toward Jesus, verse 30. But when he saw the wind, nobody sees the wind, right? You see the effects of the wind. You don't actually see wind. You see trees moving. You feel stuff. You don't actually see the wind But he sees the effects of the wind, right? He sees the waves blowing, the sprays coming up. He sees the waves. He sees the boat reacting to it. All those things, right? He sees it. And when he takes his eyes off Jesus, and he he sees the wind, and he was afraid. He began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they had climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. See, Peter wanted to make a splash, but he ends up taking a splash. Maybe you can relate, right? right, Let me give it to you. Jesus says, and why did you doubt? And people might think that's a criticism of Peter, but I got to tell you, there's 11 other guys who didn't even try. See, Jesus is saying there's a faith building experience at hand here. This is a formative experience for y'all. Peter was risky enough to take a step out of the boat. He wanted to make an impact with Christ. He he wanted to walk on water. And let me tell you, to walk on water, you've got to step out of the boat. To walk in your identity, you're going to have to step into formative experiences. And so Peter steps out of the boat. Jesus says, why did you doubt? But you got to remember, all the disciples doubted. They doubted he could do it because they thought he was a ghost. They were like, hey, it's Jesus, just doing crazy stuff again. It's not what they thought. They thought he was a ghost. Then they realized it's him. Not only that, then the wind and the waves died down, and they realize that the response to the living God is that he is who he says he is, that he will meet you when you are straining at the oars of life. And when you intend to try to make a splash, and even when you, you start doing well, but you take a splash, he is there to reach down and grab you. He is there to calm the wind and the waves. He is there for you in your formative experiences because he wants to build your faith. And he asks a question, why did you doubt? It's not the first time that day that he asked that question. They didn't believe he could feed 5,000 people. Jesus has a series of events in the same day by which they would doubt. How is Jesus going to respond when he finds out that his cousin has been killed? He wants to go be alone. Now we're off on our own. Now we're out on the lake, in the middle of the lake, straining at life, straining at the oars. And is Jesus going to be there for us because he's in crisis? Jesus walks out and meets them right where they are. And has a formative experience at hand. Let me tell you. Jesus then gets to the other side with the disciples at dawn. The people in the villages surrounding the lake figure out where Jesus is. And it's this very interesting passage where Jesus, he's, he's depleted. He's been up all night. He has been, learned that his cousin has been killed He's in these tough experiences. And in that moment, he's depleted. And he sits down. And people come up, and they touch him, and they are healed the sick, the wounded, they come and they touch Jesus and he's healed. It's the only time in scripture, the only other time in scripture that people just come up to Jesus, touch him and are healed, except with the woman who'd been hemorrhaging for years, who sneaks up behind him and touches the hem of his garment while he's in a crowd of people. And Jesus feels the power go out from him and says, who touched me? And everyone's looking like, well, the whole crowd touched you, Jesus. They're all trying to touch you, but he knew that power had gone out from him and someone had been healed. The only other time you see Jesus not saying anything, not doing anything, is this time when people just walked up and touched him. He still was on mission. He still had work to do. And let me tell you in this room that there are times that you can be on mission and you experience tragedy and life continues on and listen, you don't have time to slow down and grieve the losses. And Jesus gets that. He just says, I understand. He's not coming to you today saying, let me fix you. Try these three things and you'll feel better. Jesus is just saying... As a human, as the God man, the only one who's ever existed, God himself, but also man, that he understands our weaknesses. And let me tell you, there are two things being in pain and being powerless will inevitably expose our immature, childish pictures of God. If you're in pain or you're powerless, it will inevitably expose our immature, childish pictures of God. Jesus asked the question why did you doubt? And sometimes you and I have a picture in our mind of what God's supposed to do and how life is supposed to work. And God says, I love you so much, I'm gonna mature you, I'm gonna build strength in you. So I'm gonna walk you through formative experiences. And today, our, my prayer has been that, God, would you grow us up? Would you grow us up as a church? Would you work us away from some of our immature beliefs about how life's supposed to operate and what you're supposed to do in it and what I'm supposed to do in it? And so if you'll look with me at your outline, there on the left-hand side is what we would call childish or immature faith belief statements and on the right mature adult faith and let's walk through some of these together first of all you might believe if you have a childish faith that good christians don't have pain or disappointment maybe you think once i come to christ then all my pain all my disappointment somehow go away but what you realize is that's not real life is it that's not reality or true But what happens is people get a new identity in Christ and then they walk through an experience where they're tried or they're tested or they're tempted. There's pain, there's disappointment. They feel powerless and they say, God, where are you? Did you leave me? A mature adult faith would say that God uses our pain and disappointment to make us better Christians. What happens in formation is that God is walking through a formative experience to help us live in our identity. He's giving us spiritual muscle. These test my ability to persevere, to endure, giving me an opportunity to gain a little bit of spiritual muscle, right? Second Corinthians 1.4, Paul said it this way. He said, of God, he said, God who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. He's saying this, formative experiences let us realize that God is there, that he'll reach down and grab you when you sink, That he is there when you're afraid to risk. He's there when you doubt. But because God in our form of experience brings comfort, we say when I was hurting, when I was disappointed, when I was in pain, God, you met me with comfort. Now I've been given some spiritual muscle. That when someone else is in need of comfort, I can take what I have received from God and give it to somebody else. Because I am convinced that God was there for me when I thought he wasn't. When I doubted, here's how God came through. When I was in pain, here's how God met me with comfort. And so God says, I want to give you some spiritual muscle and not just let you think that good Christians don't have pain or disappointment. Secondly, God helps those who help themselves. How many of you have ever heard that? God helps those who help themselves. In other words, like, get going, do something with your life, right? That's not in the Bible. People might say it is. It's not in the Bible. You won't find it. What you'll find in the Bible is that God helps those who admit their own helplessness. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. What does that mean? That you and I need to get to the point where we admit our helplessness. God, I am helpless, right? seems so backwards, doesn't it? Like to convince other people to become Christians, you think, I've got to be strong. I've got to show that like, I'm, I just have a faith and that I never doubt and that it's somehow strong and that somehow is going to convince people and you know what they see? They just say that's fake. That's not real life. And God is saying, listen, there is a, an aspect of your witness when you admit your own helplessness that shows an authenticity to a lost world. Jesus said it this way in John 15:5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, even in our formative experiences, God, I admit my helplessness. I'm in pain. I feel the disappointment. I feel powerless. And so, God, I need you right now. And I'm going to need you again tomorrow morning. And I'm going to need you through this whole season. Really, I need you my whole life. And either we can cut ourselves off from God and think that somehow this pain and disappointment will bear fruit in our lives when in reality, we're just going to sink. And God left us. You did not hear that Peter started to sink and Jesus dove. You don't hear that. He let him sink. But it wasn't until Peter said, Lord, save me, that Jesus instantly reached out his hand, grabbed him, and pulled him up. How many of you have been sinking for a while? because you've not admitted your own helplessness. Maybe it's time to say, Lord, save me. Childhood immature faith would say that, well, God wants to make us happy. We hear this all the time in our culture, don't we? Well, God, you just want me happy, right? But the truth is that God wants to make us in the image of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? It means this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, we see a picture of Jesus. We see his attitude. We see his resulting action. What does Jesus look like? And if I'm supposed to be in the image of Jesus, what should my attitude be? What should my actions be? We see this in Philippians 2, verse 5. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not puff himself up, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. What kind of death? Even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself, became a suffering servant, and that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. How often when you and I feel in pain or disappointment or we feel powerless, do we make it all about us? The Christian life is not about you. It's about God and his glory. And so Jesus submitted himself under the will of the Father to redeem people like me and people like you. Messy people. People who get caught up in stuff and we're helpless. People who are carried on by the very things that you don't want to keep doing. People who need to say, Lord, help me. But he's not going to force his way in. He's going to wait till you and I humble ourselves. See, God doesn't want to make you happy. God wants to make you holy. And if you're disappointed with God for not considering your happiness, if you've felt in your life like, I've been unhappy for some time, I've been unhappy for too long, and where's God in all this? Maybe you're not seeking God. Maybe you've made yourself God. You're seeking idolatry. Because what Paul says is that we can grow when we seek joy, not happiness. When we're seeking happiness, it's all about us. But when we seek joy, we'll sacrifice even to the glory of the Father. And we'll have deep significance in the face of trial. A deep inner joy, even though the circumstances around us shift, right? In plenty, or in want, in sickness, or in health. For richer, for poorer, for better, for worse. Life has all of them. That we can experience joy because of our identity in Christ and because of God who's right there for us. But it doesn't mean that we only experience all the positives and don't experience the opposite, right? God walks us through formative experiences. Some of our formative experiences are intended for you and I to get to the end of our idol. Oh, he'll let you go. He'll let you chase after it. He'll let you go as far as you're willing to run, but he's just waiting for you to get to the end of your idol so that you stop bowing down to a thing of your own creation, even if it's yourself, and find out that I myself cannot satisfy me. And no one else can satisfy me. And not enough money can satisfy me. And not enough fame or exposure or education or competence can satisfy me. Only Christ teach me that I'm competent, that I'm significant, and that I'm important because he thinks so. So we get to the end of ourselves and we run back to him. Sometimes we think that faith will help us always explain what God is doing and that things will always work out. Have you heard a person who's, who just, you know, they, they don't know what to say. So they bring like a Christianese kind of answer. Oh, well, just everything's going to work out. You know, well, God knows what he's doing. Well, do you ever feel like, great, I'd sure like to know. (laughs) Right? That's like an immature faith. What, What we find is that a mature adult faith says faith helps us stand under God's sovereignty, that God can do whatever God wants to do. Faith helps us stand under God's sovereignty even when we have no idea what God is doing. Job is a guy in the Old Testament, and he had lost uh, his wealth. He had lost his community, his family. A lot of them were killed all at once. In fact, he had lost his health at this time. He had boils on his body. He was taking broken pottery and popping open the boils all over his body. He was suffering. He, he could hardly even just, just lie there. And his wife sees her husband suffering, and she's, she sees him in this ongoing misery, and she comes up with this suggestion. She says, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? There's a couple of stories like that in the Bible where I always want to say, thank you, honey. <laughs> I think of Lot offering his daughters to these guys, you know, outside the house. Thank you, Dad. You know, there's a lot of different statements again like get in this Bible, but you, the compassion of his wife was actually, I can't stand seeing you in suffering anymore. Maybe if you curse God, your suffering will be ended. But Job says this amazing thing after he's lost everything and he's in this formative experience. He says this power statement. It just blows my mind. Job 13, 15, he says back to his wife of God, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. How do you say that? How do you get a faith that's strong enough to say that, right? What happens to us? We start to get in pain, we start to get disappointment, and we begin to accuse God that he abandoned us, that he's not there for us, that he didn't care about us. But the truth is God's walking us through a formative experience and we watch and see the end of the story that God replaces his family, that God replaces his possessions, that God meets his needs and gives him joy again in his life. But he had to walk through the valley of the shadow of death to get there. A number of years ago I watched a young couple, and they were trying to get pregnant, and they were trying and trying. They've been trying for some time, and and they just wouldn't get pregnant. And then they started trying to do all the in vitro stuff, and they're just like, I'm like, this is like one of my great friends, and just saying, God, I just, I just want to, you know, for us to get pregnant, and we're we're praying for them. We're praying, God, pray, get them pregnant, and you know, and you just want so much. Oh Lord, would you just please do that for this family? These people would make like the best parents ever would you please do that and they were working with college young adult ministry and as they're working with college young adult ministry I, like i know their struggle i know what they're they're going through and and, and i go on this uh, retreat with them and they're working with this teenage gal young adult who had gotten pregnant and didn't want to be and they're working with her to value what god was doing on the inside of her they were working with her to to keep the baby and i'm thinking just have the baby and give it to them right like like that would make sense. Like problem solved, right? Whatever, you know. And and, and I'm just seeing what's going on here and 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 I I I literally I would just have to say, God, do, do you have any idea what you're doing, God? Like this makes no sense to me. Like they would be so good and then here's this other one and she's like I don't even want to be pregnant. And watching them reach and be faithful to be on mission with God in the midst of their own pain and disappointment. I watched God honor that in some amazing ways later on as they are parents now. But there was a season of formation where God was giving them deep roots and deep faith. And in the time when they would doubt, he would say, why did you doubt? And keep on. Are you going to be faithful in the line of conflict like I just described? I and mean, what does it look like to abide with Christ in those hard places? What does it look like to be attached to the vine, to walk with Jesus in the hard places? What does that look like for you? Sometimes we think immaturely that the closer we get to God, the more perfect we become, right? That's what the world thinks of Christians, right? Oh, you think you're all high and mighty. You think you're always right. You think blah, blah, blah. And I think the closer you get to God in your own mind, the more perfect you become. And then when you fall, when you get tempted, when you fail, then they point the finger like our culture does, and we elevate celebrities, and we shoot them down the next minute. That's what we're trained to do, right? Well, that would be immature faith to think the closer we get to God, the more perfect we become. The truth is, the closer we get to God, the more we become aware of our own sinfulness. I like to say it this way. The closer we get to God, the more we become aware of our own need for God. Like maybe when we gave our life to Christ, we thought our need was this big. But the closer I get to God, the difference I see between a holy, just, righteous God and the condition of my life and my past and my history, I see how desperately I still need God. That's authentic. I want you to understand something. All the things on the left-hand side of your sheet are the marks of a hypocrite. and the world will set you up. In fact, they're the accusations of the enemy, aren't they? I mean, isn't it the enemy who comes along and says, hey, good Christians don't have pain or disappointment. God must be judging you. It's the enemy who comes along and says, hey, God helps those who help themselves. Why don't you try harder, do better, see how it goes. Isn't it the enemy who says, God wants to make you happy, right? Well, what's, what's with this? Do you see that the enemy dwells on the left hand side of your sheet. But mature adult faith is where God is, is on the right hand side. Romans chapter 7, verse 24, Paul writes, What a wretched man I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, myself and my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. He begins to understand the closure he gets to God. He understands the nature of the flesh, but he understands the nature of grace and that there is a God, thanks and praise be to God, who will rescue me from this body of death. The day comes when we are made in complete unity with God. Let me tell you, one of the beautiful things about heaven that few people talk about is that heaven is a place where all the tension of life is gone. The tension between identity and formation is gone. Wouldn't that be nice? That we're just in our identity and there's no more tension to it. The tension between male and female is gone. No more tension there. The tension between young and old is gone. The tension between our body aging, the tension between all the things we think, the tension between time and space, it's all gone in heaven. What a beautiful day that will be, won't it? That the tensions of life are gone. Things are made right. The enemy wants you to shortchange the process. He would say that mature Christians have answers. See, we always assume that growth will be, uh, that spiritual growth means I just need to know a little more, I need to learn a little more, I need to learn a few more answers. Now, let me be very clear here. God has given us an instruction manual and he tells us to get in here and to know this book. He tells us that we are to abide with him, that part of abiding with him is listening. This is his text message to us. It's not just this is down and we just talk, 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 talk to God, but not read what he writes back. Half of our conversations here would be silence if we read what he already told us about here. So we're to study to be a workman or workwoman approved who is prepared with an answer, but it doesn't mean that we always know everything or we've always arrived or that we always have answers. In fact, mature Christians can wrestle honestly with tough questions because we trust that God has the answers. When did it not become okay to say, I don't know, But for some reason, you feel like, well, I'm supposed to know. I'm supposed to you know, have it all together and know where it all is. And our world would see that and say, that's not even reality. It's okay to say, I don't know. I'm a work in progress. I'll look it up. I'll try to find out. Let's engage some of these tough questions of life. Let me engage with you. And at times, I don't know. Say, I don't know. But I trust that God knows. And it doesn't make me wrong because I don't know yet. I know the one who knows. And let me tell you, that makes a world of difference, doesn't it? You know the one who already knows instead of just being a parrot who is fighting for your hypothesis or philosophy or slogan. Telling a pruned tree to just do a little more is cruel counsel. But we can tell the pruned tree to abide. Abide deeply. Be restored. Stay rooted. Let God do in you all that God wants to do in this formative season. The enemy would say that good Christians are always strong. They try to put it on the, I'm good, I'm fine, I'm good face. I don't hear a lot in leadership. I read a lot of leadership books. I don't hear a lot in leadership about weakness. In the last few years, we're finally hearing something about authenticity in leadership, aren't we? Our culture is shifting. Ten years ago, you wouldn't hear be authentic in leadership. It would be maintain the persona because people trust the persona. Our culture has torn that down, haven't they? But the enemy comes along and says, well, good Christians are always strong a mature adult faith says our strength is in admitting our weaknesses and our need for others. It's getting to the end of ourselves. It stops saying I'm in formation, but even in formation, I need community. I need people around me. I need to admit my own weaknesses. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 19 about a weakness that he was experiencing that he asked God to take away. He said this in verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. That's Jesus's quote back to Paul when he asked Jesus to take away his thorn in the flesh. So Paul said this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Did you notice that God's power doesn't rest on him? until he admits his own weaknesses. So he's saying, okay, God, if there's a reality that your glory is increased when and through my weaknesses, then I'm going to boast about my weaknesses because it's then that God's power rests on me. Peter stepped out of the boat. He was walking on water. It's only two people we know have ever done that. There were 11 other guys in the boat, did nothing. Peter steps out, walks on the water, begins to doubt, begins to sink. Jesus rescues him. He admitted his weaknesses, his need for God. See, the enemy would say that strong emotional experiences are actually deeper spiritually. See, our culture gets deceived, right? The more emotional I feel, then the more real it must be. But how often do we realize that we can't trust our own emotions, right? How often do we react emotionally and then we go back and go, oh, I was wrong. Let me tell you, that first worship set that our worship team did here, man, we could have just ended church right there. That was awesome. Wouldn't you admit? Wouldn't you just give it up for them? They did a great job, don't you think? And yet as believers, we're taught in scripture to test every spirit and wind of teaching. As we worship emotionally in the spirit, we're, we're instructed to worship in spirit and, but don't forget, in spirit and truth. We're supposed to worship in both. So, so with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, let that be an emotional outpouring. Let your spirit be engaged. Don't, don't hide your spirit from engaging with the Lord, but sing out, engage your heart, but let's balance it with truth that we're to test every wind of teaching. 1 John 4, 1 says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Listen, there are false teachers who will be one degree off even within the realm of Christianity or religion, and they will say there is this emotional experience available for you. And if this deep emotional experience happens, then it must be trustworthy. And let me tell you, this year I sat in a boat on the Ganges River where Europeans, and actually a person I met from Southern California, is sitting in a boat having an emotional religious experience with a false god. And we're out there on a boat worshiping the true and living God intimidated by a world that just says, I'm searching for a spiritual experience, but we've got to test the spirits to find out if they are true. Immature faith would say we go to church because our friends are there, because we have great leaders, and we get something out of it. But mature adult faith would say we go to church because we are the body of Christ, and we are spiritual contributors, so we celebrate and we serve. See, See, the difference is, that, that we go, not because we go to soak in like a sponge and then stay soaked up and become moldy and stink and bring death and spores and who knows what kind of allergies, right? But that we soak in so we can get squeezed out. That part of being like Christ is that we, we abide with the Father, we celebrate Him. What a beautiful thing that right here in this room right now, with all of our diverse financial backgrounds and our diverse. our our, our racial diversity that's in this room with all of our differences in age, all of our differences in where we live, all of our differences in life position, that we come together and the level playing field happens where we are together under Jesus Christ and we are the church. It's a beautiful thing. This is the only place that that kind of thing ever happens, right? That's what is beautiful. We come because we are the body of Christ and we are lifting up Jesus Christ, but we celebrate and we serve. We use the gifts and talents he's given us. And we pour out. otherwise we soak up, we soak up, we soak up. We try to make life all about us, and then we say, God, I entered a formative experience. Where were you? It disappointed me. That weekend thing I used to do just didn't work. Hebrews ten twenty four says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Alan Fadling said this, God wants us to recognize that the hard training he takes us through is one of the best evidences of his loving commitment to us. Instead, I often assume that the hard places are a product of my own failures or an attack of the enemy. But God is bigger than both my failures and the attack of the enemy's efforts. I'm not in the hard places because God is helpless in the face of their cause. I am in the hard places for my good and his glory. Yes, God allows us to travel to dry places so that he can refine us. In what ways is God inviting you and me to draw near to him in the midst of the hardships that you're now facing? If there's an invitation this morning, if there's an invitation right now, what is the invitation God's giving you? If he says, you're here, you're here today, I'm inviting you. He's asking, in what ways is God inviting you to abide with him in the hard places? Some of us, it's come to the end of ourselves. Others of us, it's one of these things. In fact, I want you to look over that list real quick. I want you to circle one of those areas where you realize God is wanting to mature me in this area. I buy into that left-hand side all the time. Just circle one. Circle one that you're saying, okay, God, I just realized that that's a struggle for me, that one right there. And I'm going to admit it because you're just inviting me to meet you right there. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life, maybe in this room today, you're realizing that you've never given your life to Jesus, that you've never accepted his offer of forgiveness of your sin through his death on the cross. You've never understood your identity in Christ because you've never said yes to him. But it's in that moment that he says, I want you to come to my forever family. I want to adopt you as my son or my daughter whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And if that's you today, if you'd like to invite Jesus to be your Lord, the master, the ruler of your life, then you pray a prayer like this, just right where you're seated. You pray it in your heart, God hears you. You just pray something like this after me. Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my life, forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, that you were raised to new life because you were God. And I ask you to make me a new creation Adopt me into your forever family, because today I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.